mean, you've been putting in work for so long. Putting in a lot of work. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Putting in Work, episode 144 of the interview podcast on the 8-Bit Collective. We are powered by the amazing gear over at Audio Technica and Manscaped. We'll get to that later. I'm your host, John O'Peck, and joining us this week, we have Dan Lima, a UI software engineer for Electronic Arts, or EA as you might know them, one of the biggest companies within the video game industry. I think their last annual revenue reported was more than $5 billion, and Dan is one of their many, many employees, 9,300 according to my research. But the reason that he's on the podcast is because he reached out to me and has a really great story to tell. It's a story about an immigrant from Brazil going to America to study, trying to land work there, and the experience that he had over those years with a bit of a gap in the middle, trying to find his place, and eventually landing this role with Electronic Arts, working on UI, HUD design, all the little text and and cool stuff that happens on screen that you don't really think about, but it's there. You notice it when it's bad, but you don't notice it when it's good, and that's the way it probably should be. He's working on a currently unannounced super under wraps project so we weren't able to talk so much about his specific work with ea but it was interesting to kind of hear about the experience of joining the studio that he's part of at the start of the year about six months ago when covid was kicking off and the fact that he's been there for that long without actually meeting a single person that he works with and talks to every single day Uh, but yeah generally this is a story about growing up in brazil where things are very different to the u.s some of the hardships and extra work that it's taken Dan to excel and to to stand out in this industry to the point that he can now work for EA. So congrats to Dan. I'll let him go into the detail because there's quite a bit to get through. So without further ado, please enjoy the show. Dan, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Great to have you here. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to talk to you. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like you reached out to me. I feel like it was a while ago at the, at the start of, at the, kind of near the start of the year or a few months into the year mm-hmm. and it was like a um you hadn't quite moved to ea yet but you were planning to and couldn't really say what it was but you've been there for a few months now which is pretty exciting although i'm guessing it's been a little different with pandemic and everything happening so i, I guess to start with what's it been like adjusting to kind of a dream job in some ways where it hasn't quite been the dream experience <laughs> that you would have liked. Yeah, I, I understand I understand what you're talking about. And so interesting. I was talking to some friends about it recently because I just hit six months uh, at this job now because I started on April 27th. So October 27th, yeah. a few days ago was when I hit six months. And I have not met a single person that I work with in person yet. <laughs> and I have not been in the office yet at all. Um, just, just been like, I was interviewed remotely and then I was hired remotely. I was actually already working remotely for my previous company, uh, mm. during the transfer. Uh, people thought I was uh, like a little crazy for like changing jobs during this time frame and everything. Cause it was, it was right as like things had just hit and lockdowns were starting to happen here in California. And I think I had been working from home maybe for a few weeks then, or no, at that point it must've been like a month. And it, it was this weird, like, oh, are you really going to like, because there is some, there's always some risk involved in changing jobs. Like, are you really going to change mm-hmm. jobs right now? But um, given the the circumstances uh, of the offer at the time that I received it and everything and the project, it was, it was just one of those things that I couldn't really say no to. And I was very excited about. Uh, so I was like, no, I'm just going to do it. And at the time, I, I, I figured, you know, I'm going to start remote, but soon I'm going to be 
working physically yeah. in an office and now it's been six months and I'm still in the situation. Um, I don't know. It's it, it. I feel like at this point I've gotten used to it uh, to the point where it's just, it's just more of the same, right? Like I, mm. I've got, I've gotten to know everybody. Uh, my studio is pretty good about making sure people are connected and are interacting with each other and being social with each other to the best of our capabilities. Um, so it's almost like now I almost feel like it's going to be weird when I finally go into the office and I, I will have this one day where I'm meeting all these people that I've been talking to and working with for yeah. many months. I mean, who knows, maybe over a year by that point. I hope not. <laughs> yeah. It, it must have been just a weird day, like that first day where, you know, yesterday mm-hmm. you went into your study or your, you know, sat down at your laptop and you're working for this company. And the uh-huh. next day you go in and sit down and you're working for a different company. There's no like, no one to welcome you or introduce you to anyone. Yeah, exactly. And and I had a bunch of like, everything is happening in Zoom, you know, like just like a lot of other companies that we're trying to conduct business as usual in, in so many ways but it was still just this very unique weird experience for me to be starting in this new job in this capacity and then meanwhile it was funny too i mean it's not funny it's almost like it almost felt guilty about it because i had all these people reached out to me like worried like hey are you right like how has this affected you and it just so happened that i had this like upwards move in my career uh Mm. it while like so many things were on fire around the world so it was this weird like you know, I, I kind of had to get over feeling guilty about it for a little bit because I was doing very well and so many people I knew were not doing uh, so well. So, mm. but, you know, at, at some point it's just, it's just what it is, you know, the, with, with everything bad that's been happening uh, caused by the pandemic, the, the games industry has actually surprisingly been staying afloat and, and even thriving in, in some ways, which I've been kind of surprised about. I'm going to be honest. You know? Yeah. I guess it's interesting. Like, I know a lot of people, myself included, who are actually having like a good year. Like we're having a lot of time mm. with our family, you know, mm. we're working from home and we've been fortunate and blessed that the pandemic and all the, you know, the the negative, terrible things that are associated with it haven't personally affected us, which, you know, yeah. it, it's, you know, it's not over yet. So who knows what it'll end up being, but uh, yeah, it's just hard to watch so many people going through the tough experiences at the same time. But yeah, talking from that games perspective, I I guess a lot of people like us and some of the people I just mentioned who aren't, you know, economically affected, their jobs are going fine. Mm -hmm. They're still able to spend a lot of money or they probably have more money to spend on their hobbies at home because they're not going on holidays and they're not going out for meals. So yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to see what the overall revenue in the gaming industry is compared to, to previous years after this yeah absolutely it's, it's just one of those things where i i just felt so lucky to be in the position that i was um at the start of the pandemic to where i was working in a job that could very well be done from home almost to the same extent to the same ability i know a lot of people mm. have been comparing like game development from home versus in an office and talking about all the things that are not as easy to do maybe when you're home versus when you're in an office and it's all true but at the end of the day what we're doing is sitting behind a computer and writing code or making art or you know doing visual scripting or whatever it is that you do and mm. those are things that you can still do at home and i 
so I, I was just lucky to be in that position and, and also like interviewing for a new job and et cetera, right, right as uh, everything happened. And then it, it, it just happened to work out. And then I'm also getting married now. So 2020 yeah. is this year that, you know, where I, where I got a new job that I'm very excited about, where I'm getting married. Um, so despite the fact that it's like there's all these things that have affected me, too, uh, in a way negatively and people around me and that I'm really involved with, there's still like these bright spots uh, in 2020 for me. Hmm. That's good. You, you need those things to, to keep going, I think. So Yeah, great. absolutely. So let's take it back and do some origin story here, Dan. Yeah. What was your introduction to games that made you think like this is an industry I could work in and, and how mm. did that start out for you? Yeah, I uh, I will answer that. I just want to get it out of the way because I realized there were like five minutes in and I haven't done this yet. But um, as, as I think you mentioned <laughs> yeah. originally, uh, I'm working for EA. I work for Industrial Toys, which is a mobile studio within the EA family here in Pasadena, California. But I'm here to represent only myself today and not EA. And all the views that I'm going to be sharing are my own. I'm going to be speaking on behalf of my personal individual capacity and not on behalf of EA, yada, yada, yada. So just just got to just gotta get that out of the way, right? Uh, I'm not a EA representative sure. by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, I just happen to work there and we'll share a little bit about my story today. So let's dial all the way back. So my introduction to games was probably with the Super Nintendo back when I was like maybe like five or so. And I was born and raised in Brazil. I came to the U.S. for the first time uh, in 2011. And when I the thing that's interesting about growing up with the with the with games in Brazil is that it's a very different experience than it is in the U.S., and probably different than Australia too, for that matter. And it's a little bit different in every different place. Um, Brazil used to get consoles very late. Um, people, mm. you know, people were rocking the PSU there back when people here were about to get the PS4. And um, so even though, you know, when I think of, you know, when I was five, that would have been like late 90s, maybe 2000. Um, people here were playing the, the PS1 or waiting for the PS2. I was playing the Super Nintendo um, I had a Game Boy, I think, around the time frame as well. And I was also big on PC. And that's kind of where a lot of these things started for me because my family had a, a computer at home. It was like it was like a family computer that we all shared. Um, and that was my favorite toy when I was like six. And I would like sit down in front of that thing and I would do things that like, I guess not even like my parents at the time would understand how I was able to do. And that's something that they always like telling stories about how they like, uh, they'd get home and I'd be like, Oh yeah, look, I look at this thing I made. And I would be making like Excel spreadsheets when I was like six. <laughs> Cause I just, I just liked the computer so much. I was just fascinated by it. Um, I have this very old memory where I figured out that I could, like, if I made images in MS paint and then I'll save them put them all in a folder, then you could, I could open up like the first image and then go through them with the arrow keys. And then you would see, like go through the different images. And so I was trying to do like animations that way, like really early on. And so uh, my childhood involves like some like console gaming. Like I said, my first console was the SNES. And then eventually I got like a PS1 and a PS2. Um, I played a lot of pirated games too, by the way, which is an interesting whole <laughs> thing to talk about too. Um, I'm kind of passionate about talking about that subject from time to time because it was just the reality of growing up in Brazil. Like that's just what people did. Uh, it was like a whole different culture yeah. when it comes to that kind of thing. 
I never. I gotta, like, I gotta say, like even over here, like if you had a PS One, it was pretty decent chance that you had like a mod chip installed so you could <laughs> play like burnt games. But yeah, exactly. Like I remember my godmother gave me a PS One for my birthday when i was like turning like eight or nine and it was like uh, the first question you'd ask when you got a ps1 is like oh is it is it cracked yet like is it unblocked like and and that was the thing because it was just crazy like the idea of buying like original games at that time with the brazilian economy and the way that like the our importation taxes and all that stuff like it was just insane it was something that nobody could do um so people just like they would like buy a game and then make copies of it and then just sell the copies for like five bucks a piece when the original games were going for like over a hundred dollars probably converted to like our money which would be like somebody's like full month's wage or something <laughs> so yeah it was it was insane the idea of buying original games was this very insane thing so it wasn't something that i started doing until later on and and that you know i've never pirated anything since you know i've become like i've, I've been living here and had especially since i've had my own like income and etc and i'm a contributor to the games industry as a consumer as much as a a developer but it's just interesting to look back at those roots sometimes um yeah it is because i I think like if you if you're you know gonna be like cracking it down into the detail if you hadn't pirated those games then you probably wouldn't have really pursued it as a hobby and therefore you wouldn't be now working in that industry making games yeah exactly and and i've talked to people that have had like a similar uh background too with that kind of stuff and that's why i think it's so interesting to think about the concept of piracy it's like it's this thing that you know i don't endorse and that is bad for a lot of reasons and we know that especially as a developer i know that Uh, i've had friends um you know indie developers that have poured their heart and souls into a game to then put it out and realize that like they got you know a hundred purchases but there's a thousand pirated downloads you know and it it sucks it's it's rough from that sense but then i also understand the perspective of like people that grew up in scenarios where that was the only way that they could experience games at that time um nowadays you know free to play is very widespread and mobile games are widespread and there's a vast array of uh other options too but yeah it's interesting looking back into that for sure and so what was the point where you well, you know, playing these games, mucking around with um, the computers that you realized that this could be a job for you, that, that you could, uh, I guess, I don't know if it was on your mind that it would take you out of Brazil, even to, to the States, but what was the point where you saw a future in it? So the interesting thing, like leading back, like, like leading up to that is that making games actually became a hobby of mine pretty early on. And that was kind of the thing that I spent like most of my time doing throughout a lot of middle school and high school, thanks to a little program called RPG Maker. Mm. I don't know if you uh, ever heard of it or used it. It's still a thing now, isn't it? Like it I've, is. I've heard, I've heard like they just recently released a new version of it for yeah. PlayStation or something. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy because like nowadays I see that they're like legit developers making RPG Maker games and putting them out there on Steam and like making money off of it. And that was something that at the time I don't think existed. But um, yeah, when I was like really young, I managed to get my hands on a copy off RPG Maker. Um, it was like, it actually, it was like this disc. I don't even know if this was legal now that I look back on it <laughs> going <laughs> circling back, but I, I got, found my, got my hands into this disc that had RPG maker 2000, 2003 and XP. Um, it, which I think that was around like, um, maybe like 2000, 
five or so. And I, I just started messing with those things um, and, and playing with those programs and, and making stuff. And I got super involved into like internet forums and the RPG com- maker community was like this huge community, like all across the globe. And even in Brazil, there were like dedicated Brazilian like digital magazines just to cover like RPG maker games. There were like tutorials all over the web and et cetera. And that was something that I got really ingrained on. I like made friends throughout it, through it. Like I, and I, I just found myself very passionate about that program. Now, even though I was passionate about that program and like literally I would like go home after school and try to make a game every day almost. Uh, and I never really put anything out. Like I just, I started things and then left them midway and then I do other things. And I had some games that like some of my friends played and things like that. It, it never became a serious thing. It never became a thing that I thought, you know, this is going to be my career. I guess I'd never really put mm. two and two together until I was finishing high school um and i finished high school pretty early i was like 16 um because i i just started early and and in brazil the years are a little bit different too but i graduated in 2010 and at the time i really didn't know what i was gonna do i had these ideas in my head i kind of wanted to be a writer uh which is why i would love to pick your brain about that some (laughs) at some point uh (laughs) I, uh, I really look up to the fact that, you know, you've, you've been able to uh, write and publish multiple books already because um, I used to write a lot as hobbies. I, I still do occasionally. Um, and I considered being a journalist. I had all these conflict engineer, like I had mm-hmm. like all these conflicting yeah. ideas. Um, and it was when I came across this American school in Florida called Full Sail University, uh, which you might have heard about it's like this uh it's like an arts and entertainment school in florida uh and all their degrees are like these crazy like accelerated uh programs for gaming and music and film and all this other stuff and i i came across it online and 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 i saw it and they had a game development degree and i was like oh man this this would be really cool so i ended up applying to it uh and and i did this from brazil I should give some context to this too, which is I'm very thankful for my family and the fact that they were very supportive at the time and they were in a financial place where they could support me to pursue that dream shawl I want to. Uh, And they were actually the ones that were almost kind of pushing for us to look outside our country. Um, Mm. Growing up in Brazil, there's kind of this big culture of, you know, the the grass is greener outside of here. Uh, I feel like a lot of Brazilians, when you ask them about their country, they may talk about the positives, but they also talk a lot about the negatives. And it's a common theme that people want to go to the U.S. or want to go to Europe or want to go to like some first world country to to raise their children there or their grandchildren or whatever. And so my family kind of always had that in mind. We had traveled to the U.S. a few times by then. And so they were very supportive about the full sale thing. And, and then when it worked out, uh, we actually all moved together. <laughs> Um, yeah, wow. yeah, which which at the time people thought was insane. Like when I was going to the school, people were like, oh, damn, your family's crazy. And and it's true. <laughs> My family is crazy. Um, <laughs> but it so so that's kind of how it started, really. Um, it was I, I had actually all these different directions that I could have gone. Uh, but when I when when that idea came about, I knew that that had to be it because it was just like I loved math um, and I programming involves a lot of. Not necessarily math, but logic, you know, like mm-hmm. the, it's a lot of similar skill set. Um, I liked, you know, I consider myself a creative person. and I liked, 
you know, writing stories and making things. And then I like playing with RPG Maker and I loved games. So I was like, man, making games would be really cool. Um, so that's kind of what what sort of triggered it. And I think the interesting thing, too, is that I don't know if at the time I was particularly passionate about programming. Uh, it was more the idea of making games. Um, and so I sometimes I wonder, like, there's like some other dimensions out there where maybe I became a game artist instead or a game like writer or something instead. Uh, but ultimately, the programming thing worked out pretty well for me. So I'm glad that that's the path I, I took. Yeah, for sure. And I have to say, like, the fact that you could even consider, a, like, a, as an option, writing and journalism or game writing and mm-hmm. and and still have success as a programmer, like, that seems like quite a unique set of skills because <laughs> most people who are writers don't have, you know, as much capacity to do math mm-hmm. or it's not as natural to do math and science. Like, it's definitely not for me. And vice versa, I think like a lot of people that, you know, they excel at what you do in programming, they probably couldn't write like a great story. So if you do have that in you, that's really cool. And who knows, maybe maybe that means that you've got the uh, the beginnings to be like a one man studio in the future. If you think you could do some art too. <laughs> oh, who knows, right? Maybe I'm, I'm terrible at art. Like I can, uh, <laughs> it's funny, I can put some things together, like, uh, like I can put like little logos together and stuff like that. But when it comes to game art, I, I can't do that at all. It's, uh, it's not my skill set. But it's interesting you said that. And by the way, I hope I don't talk too much. Like every, everybody around me says I talk too much. People ask me a question yeah. and I'll go on like 10 tangents about it. But <laughs> It's an interview, so it's it's okay in this context. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So I always kind of found this interesting about me too, because it's not like I was like good on everything at school. I really wasn't. But my two top things were math and then in Brazil, Portuguese, which would have been, you know, writing English, English yeah. here. Um, so it was two things that like people like would even find weird, like they didn't go together. And then people would ask me in high school, what are you going to be? And then I'd say either an engineer or a writer (laughs) and people (laughs) like people get really confused. Like, but I was so passionate about like math and, and like, I, I legit like really liked math, um, Dan and, and I still do. Uh, it's not my main thing nowadays, surprisingly. Um, I can get into that later. Um, but I, I just really liked writing too. And I wrote short stories. Um, nowadays it's like a hobby that I don't participate in as often, but, um, I have like a half book written from like a few years ago and, um, that I, I always tell myself I want to get back to eventually. Um, and like, I've written like, honestly, like probably over a hundred short stories, like throughout my years too. Uh, yeah, it's just this weird yeah. like dichotomy. <laughs> yeah, it is, and like I- I'm fortunate to be working with an indie studio called Rainbite on their next game, Trigger Witch, as like one of the lead writer, mm-hmm. and just seeing like the way that programming works and what goes into like the-, the tiny little balances that have to be made and adjustments in the code and and having kind of just a crash course in Unity to to get an avatar to move around the screen. I definitely have a lot of admiration for anyone that can turn, you know, numbers and, and letters and, and code into something that, that works in an interactive experience of a game. So, um, yeah, to, to have those two skills is definitely really cool. Yeah, dude, programming is so interesting because I think that in some ways it's kind of like an, I mean, it's not an underrated art, but it's, it's an, 
often misunderstood art in some ways like i feel like because because with as an artist right i sometimes envy artists in the sense that you can draw you know like this beautiful painting or sprite or whatever you know make something this create this cool 3d model and then show somebody and then they can immediately see what you did right maybe they don't understand Mm -hmm. the full extent of it but they can understand you know the work you did they can see that it's something that they can't do but with programmers it's like um you gotta like at some point i remember in college when i learned like all the the amount of lines of code that he needed to write in c++ to get a triangle on screen and then it was like and then if you show anybody it's like okay a triangle all right cool man <laughs> like um it's not something yeah. that people get as easily i always uh i always think that's interesting with my family uh when i've tried like showing them or explaining them something and or like them having them try to understand what is it exactly that i do uh it's not like oh like did you make that door it's like well not exactly i made the door work <laughs> like all right i made it open when it yeah. should i made it close when it should it's like this weird kind of it, it, it and in some ways you know it i think i actually heard this in one of your podcasts where it's kind of like writing a book too in a way but it's as if like if you missed a coma or something that suddenly the whole book doesn't make sense anymore and it doesn't right. even work like you can't even open the book right so it's like it you're writing and there's a level of creativity to it too of like putting things where they should and keeping things clean and not having a necessary stuff that you don't need to be there. But then it, the logical and the exact part of it is like everything needs to be done a certain way for it to work. Cause otherwise if you mess something up, it might just not work at all or cause mm. problems later on and et cetera. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. We'll take a quick break now just to say that support for putting in work comes from Manscaped, the very best in men's self-care, hygiene, and below-the-waist grooming. Products from Manscaped are now available in Australia and New Zealand, and they just so happen to specialize in what's going on down under. Let's be honest, things can get a bit scrappy in quarantine, headdresses are closed, showering is optional, but hey, once you're ready to leave the house, you want to look and feel your best. There's great news for putting in work listeners. You can be one of the first to experience Manscaped's life-changing products down here on Australian shores with a handy 8-bit discount code. It's also available to the rest of the world too. Without the right equipment, trimming anything below the neck has been a foreign concept for a lot of fellas, but Manscaped has made it safe and easy to tidy up the wandering hairlines, getting you ready to show off that beach bod or dad bod this summer. Whether it's their amazing electric trimmer, whether it's their deodorant, anti-chafing gels, cologne, moisturizer, to keep things fresh, Manscaped's got you covered when it comes to grooming. We all need the right tools for the job, but you won't always find them at Bunnings. So get the best gear only at manscaped.com. For 20% off and free shipping, use the code 8bit at manscaped.com. Now, you mentioned working for Heavy Iron Studio. Was that kind of the first big role that you had at, at, a, at a studio out of college? Yeah, so... I uh like I said, Full Sail has like they do these accelerated programs. So I was out of there in two years. Um, it was like a two years uh bachelor's degree. Uh, it's kind of complicated because it's like some people I mean, maybe wouldn't consider it uh like a bachelor's degree because it doesn't cover like all the extra gen ed stuff that you would get in a traditional college. Like they're not a traditional college. It's mm. more like here's the the skills you need like months you there i was already learning programming and it just went hard from there uh and then once i graduated in 2013 i got this uh opportunity 
with Heavy Iron Studios in LA as an internship. Uh, at this point, uh, my my family had already uh, moved back to Brazil. Uh, they actually ended up not really staying in the U.S. They, they they came with me originally, but then they ended up going back. So it was just me. And I was actually pretty young because I started Full Sail at 16, mm. which means that the two-year degree, I finished at 18. Um, so at age 18, I got this internship opportunity with this company in L.A. I was in Florida. Um, so like across across the country... Uh, I had like friends in Florida, but I didn't really have like any family there. And it was just kind of this, when I look back on it, like I realized that it was kind of like a crazy thing to do. And I don't even understand how I was able to like <laughs> rationalize it and do it at the time. Um, because I just kind of packed my stuff and I went to LA for an internship that at the time it was supposed to be like a two month internship, I think. Um, and I had to go alone and then like find a place and like rent it. It was this crazy, like kind of like growth experience for me i yeah, think because sure. i had to do like all this stuff by myself i knew like literally nobody in california at all um and then i started at heavy iron and and heavy iron for those that don't know they they used to be part of thq back in the day they, they're actually a company that's been around for like 20 years now and when thq went under they went independent and back in the day, they worked on games like the SpongeBob Battle for Bikini Bottom game and Incredibles and all these PS2 games, some of which that I actually had played. Um, <laughs> I didn't really know the studio, honestly, before I got the opportunity. Um, like, honestly, it's it's really hard uh, breaking into the games industry. Like, I applied to like 100 different places and I got like two responses back. And that's kind of the typical story. So yeah. uh, it was kind of what worked out for me at the time. So I was like, I was willing to to take the risk. Um, I wasn't getting paid too much. I mean, it was it was really like intern pay in California, which is like super expensive. I had no idea what I was doing. Like, I, I don't think I even had the proper concept of like how much I would be making and how much I would have to spend to live. Um, and I just kind of took that on a whim. And I like... Those months were so interesting because like I rent, I managed to somehow rent this place and um, I had to like figure out a way to let even let them <laughs> let uh, let them let me rent it because um, because I didn't have like anything to prove that I could really maintain, you know, like how over here, like you're, you go rent an apartment and they want to see like your last like three pay stubs and like all this yeah, stuff yeah. <laughs> and have you proved that you're actually not going to. um screw them over and i i didn't really have a lot of that so i managed to convince them to to let me have this apartment and the the rent of the apartment was pretty much all i made um so i had literally no furniture like i lived i ended up the two months um got extended and i'll get to that in a minute but i ended up living there for like five months at the end and i had like no furniture whatsoever i <laughs> I like I wanted to buy like a mattress online on like Amazon and I accidentally bought a mattress stopper, which I didn't even know what it was at the time. But I, I like the picture showed a mattress. So I was like, oh, this works. And it's like 30 bucks. <laughs> so I'm going to buy this. And it was like basically this like blanket that I just kind of put on the floor and I slapped on that. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, yeah, but it was it was like it was it was a fun time. Um, and <laughs> so I started working at Heavy Iron and it was like, dude, like that was like the that was the freaking dream. I was like, yeah, man, I'm getting paid to make games. Like, hell yeah. What was your role there? What kind of work um, was it? I was an intern programmer. Uh, so I was just kind of, I was put into this project that's called Fat City. Uh, it's a mobile game. Well, 
here's the interesting thing. It was originally developed as a mobile game, but it's come out in like a million different platforms since because uh, they just kept porting it to everything. So, um, but I, I was put in the team that was working on this game. It was like this mall initiative inside the company. Um, it was me. And then some of the, some good friends that I have to this day, I met like in this opportunity because it was like me and then another programmer and then, like an artist and a designer. It was like this very small team mm-hmm. um, that was um, kind of prototyping this little game in there. Uh, it wasn't like a paid project by like for like a publisher or something, which is a lot of what that studio does nowadays. It was just this little internal experiment that they were doing. Um, I think it was kind of the rise of like 2013 was like kind of the rise of candy crush and other mobile games. So they were like, Oh, we got to get on this, right? Like we, we, let's, let's make a, let's make a cool mobile game over here and then try to put this out. Um, So that's what I worked on during the time that I was there. And, and the thing that was interesting is that I, I worked there for two months on internship and then my internship got extended by for an extra month. Uh, and then after that, I got made full time. And then I was full time for like a month. And then I got laid off. So <laughs> the story there, the story there is that the studio is kind of going through some like shaky times. Um, THQ, I think, had uh, gone bankrupt like less than a year prior. And they were still new on like being independent and making ends meet. Um, so they, there was like kind of this wave of layoffs around that time. And um, I was one of the people that was part of the wave because I feel like in the grand scheme of things, that was very non-essential at the time. You know, here's this intern kid that yeah. fresh out of college working on this internal experiment. Um, but, you know, the game did come out. So <laughs> I was happy about that. It took a bit, but the game eventually came out. Um, yeah, that was kind of my first foray uh, in games. And getting laid off was probably like a, a sign of, of what the industry's like as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, in a way. And, and and it's so funny too, by the way, that at the time I had this friend who had a friend who like, when I got laid off, I told him and he was like, oh, my friend can hook you up. They're looking for a programmer in this other studio. And then his friend got laid off like that day, like no joke, mm-hmm. like the same day. <laughs> it was like this very weird uh, situation. And when that happened, so like, let me put back in like that mindset. So that was late 2013 so i would have been like 19 years old i was living alone um trying to make ends meet in this apartment with no furniture and meanwhile my family who i was always very attached to was like calling me all the time and being like when are you coming home we miss you you know all that stuff Mm. uh in brazil so after this happened and then i got kind of shaken by the layoff too because i at the time i was like you know shiny eyes i was like this is gonna be it i'm gonna grow here this is gonna be great there's no either like i'm gonna grow here or this is gonna be my next stepping stone to the next thing but uh that kind of killed me there a little bit so i ended up going back to brazil um and and i often joke that my life just kind of repeats itself because there all of this is gonna deja vu later but i ended up going back to brazil and go boom moving back with my parents um and then the next few years, I wasn't working in games anymore, at least not professionally. I was doing other stuff. Right. Is that relevant at all to, to games and what you're doing now? Like, was it anything that helped or was it just you were treading water until you could get your foot back into games? It, it's interesting, right? So there were um, there was like three years-ish um, until I was kind of building my way back really into the games industry. But 
when I look back on those three years, um, at some points I felt like I was kind of stuck in a rut or like not sure what to do. And I had a lot of doubt and a lot of like, man, I fucked it up. You know, I had that one opportunity and I fucked it up and now it's done. Like I, I'm never going to be in the U S again. I'm never going to be in the games industry again. And I, I had a little bit of a defeatist attitude, I think in a way. Mm -hmm. And, but at the same time, like I was trying to, you know, I was, I was just trying things, um, from time to time. So I, I worked on a variety of different, you know, gaming side projects, um, some by myself, some with friends, uh, which didn't really work out. Like I really, I have such a great deal of admiration for indie developers, um, that get to like work on these games for years and actually get them out. I, I know a few really good friend of mine, uh, his name's Ari, like he just put out his game in early access, uh, either earlier this year or last year. It's called the lighthouse. It's very good. Just a little plug there for him. Yeah, nice. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a horror game called The Lighthouse. But I, I have such a great deal of admiration for those people because with me, it was it was just so hard to uh, stick with it. And then the ones where I did it with other people, was like the team would start falling apart eventually and then it mm. didn't work out. Then just because I wanted to, uh, to like continue doing gaming stuff, um, I got this opportunity to translate one of John Romero's uh, mobile games to Portuguese, um, which like he's, I I read Masters of Doom a long time ago. And like, I love that book. And I I, like John Romero and John Carmack, like those guys story. I think it's so cool. And Carmack is really the programmer guy that I look up to from like a programmer's perspective. But Romero was just kind of the visionary. And this very random thing happened where I just happened to follow him. I like, I followed him on Twitter, obviously. And then he tweeted like, you know, I'm putting out this game on iOS and, and, uh, anybody want to translate it? Uh, and then I was like the first response. I was like, hell yeah, I want to do it. I can do it to Portuguese. And so he emailed me like, like we exchanged emails and then he emailed me and then he sent me the, the game, like, like text files or whatever. And then I translated it to Portuguese and I sent back, uh, it was just kind of this funny thing just to kind of like, it had nothing to do, you know, with really what I like, what my role was. But that's why I yeah. kind of said in the beginning, like, I'm just passionate about games, man. I was just happy, like, oh man, I got to like send an email to John Romero, like, oh my god, <laughs> like I'm like bowing in front of my computer, um, and then, um, so then that actually gave me another opportunity to translate this other game. So there's this game by uh, Bohemia Interactive called Take on Mars. Uh, which is this game where you like explore Mars with like a rover. And then they also were translating that to a bunch of languages. And then I worked on that as a translator too. And that was like, it was such a, a, a difference between that and the other one, because this was a game that had like, like a book worth of text. It was like so much text. And then I I got one of my friends to like help out. And uh, he ended up doing more of it than I did. And that's when I learned, I don't want to be a translator. <laughs> I definitely, <laughs> that's definitely not what I want to do. Um, I also like at the time I was like doing podcasts and, um, you know, like consuming a lot of gaming content and trying to make gaming related content too. Uh, that's when I met my friend, uh, Louis Menchaca, uh, who oh, yeah. you, you might, you I remember might know. Him. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's uh, like we both kind of follow the kind of funny stuff and and uh, we met through that and then uh, we did some content together then and now we're doing it again now this year. Um, and I don't know, it was just uh, I was just experimenting with a lot of stuff. Then I was working in web development at the time. So that's what I was doing in Brazil for the most part. So I was continuing to do programming, just different type of programming. 
Um, and so much of those things actually kind of, without me knowing, I think sort of prepared me to eventually work on UI. And mm. that's kind of the, the interesting thing too, is that I've read, I, I've heard people say like, you know, everything you learn and everything you do, it all kind of leads up somewhere yeah. or it gives you a skill that you didn't expect to have. And I feel like life is kind of constantly teaching me that because I'll do these things where I'm like, why am I even doing this? What a waste of time or I'll regret doing something. And somehow it may take a while, but almost everything always eventually I get to a point where I'm like, oh, I'm glad I learned that that one mm -hmm. time. Like, I'm glad I have some insight into what localization is like and what the problems that are caused by it from the perspective of the person doing the localization, because that kind of informs some of my decisions when I'm working on UI, you know? Yeah, that's really cool. I've, I've seen that time and time again on this podcast, whether it's like, you know, like Jared Petty, who we know from his work at mm. IGN and, and beyond that, but the, all the little random things that he did leading up to, to getting into the games industry gave him this unique perspective. And then, you, you know, Shea Serrano is a guy that I've had on my podcast who is a great writer and hilarious dude, but uh, all these random like school teaching and construction jobs that gave him a unique perspective and and just i, I think that that what you do before you're doing what you want to do yeah <laughs> in some ways it makes you unique in mm. in that particular role whatever it might be so yeah that's really cool and so i guess the, the question is from uh you know from everything you've just said how did you end up at ea now that you're there doing mm -hmm. uh, doing UI, essentially. Yeah, so at some point, I kind of realized that... And, and th there might have been a path where I could have pursued something in Brazil in games, and I never pursued that that hard because to me, it always seemed like it was kind of this dead end uh, to what I wanted to really do. I feel like, in hindsight now, I feel like that might have been a bit of a childish way to look at it. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like if I was in that position with the mind I have now that I maybe would have pursued that a little further, um, potentially, because uh, there is there is a kind of like a thriving or growing gaming industry there, too. Um, it's just very small compared to the US. So to me, I always just kind of had this like this one mind that I I wanted to be here and I wanted to come back here. And eventually I realized that uh the only way for me to do it at that point, as far as like le legality uh, goes, was to go back to school. Um, and that's when I actually went to Full Sail again. And that's kind of what I was referencing as far as like deja vu goes. Right. I, I repeated it. So I went to Full Sail again so that I could get into uh, a position where I could be hireable here again. Because after you, um, for those that don't know, not to get too deep into immigration lore, but after you uh, after you go to college in the United States and you get a degree, you are mm. able to you, you can qualify for this program called OPT, which allows you to work in the United States for a limited period of time. Um, and that as, as long as you're working in your industry and for STEM fields specifically, uh, that is instead of one year, which would be the typical, you can extend it for up to three years. Um, so it was too late for me when it came to my original, uh, degree. So I was like, well, that's a way that I can basically have a second shot at it because if I went back to school, then I could do it again. And then I was like, and this time I'm not going to screw it up. And this time I'm, 
I'm not just going to come back home and like the first sit like situation gone wrong and I'm just going to try again. And then that's kind of where the ladder started. And then in an interesting way, you know, I went to full sail again and I got a master's degree and then I went to heavy iron again. And this time I worked there for two years (laughs) and then I got my job at EA earlier this year. Um, so it, it was kind of like this weird full circle thing where I had this situation that didn't work out and then I just tried it again and then it did. <laughs> it's almost like a, a video game when you like you die and then you go back to the start of the level and you try and do it a bit differently because you, know, you, you, yeah, you went back home, you're starting again, you went to the same college, you went to the same employer and yeah. made it different this time. <laughs> it, it's just such an interesting thing when I think about it and it's like, and then I look at that time in between, which... You know, whenever I, uh, I update my resume now or like I'm talking to people, it feels like a little bit of a gap. But when I look at like kind of those three years in between, um, I I don't see it as a gap anymore. It's almost like I had to catch up mentally in a lot of ways to where I could make it work because because I started school so early and then I started everything so early when I look back and myself in like 2013, I really was not mentally prepared to what was going on with me at the time. And, Hmm. um, I was like, you know, I didn't know how to drive for instance. And, you know, being in LA in 2013, that was before Uber, by the way. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) and like having to like get around without driving and like, just not really knowing like how to live by myself. Right. And, and, not really knowing how to deal with like certain personal problems right and all that stuff i feel like maybe i just needed those three years to kind of grow up and um kind of catch up on other aspects of like my personal life and i was in such a different place uh mentally Mm. when i did it again (laughs) when i i was just so much more confident and i knew what i was doing and i knew how to get around and i had i had maintained like all these connections from before too so that's how i was able to get the job there again um and it was like this weird situation where you know when i went to full sale a second time and you know i was getting my master's there i didn't really expect that like okay i'm gonna walk out of here and go back to heavy iron um but it was a door that was open really early on for me because when i was there i messaged back my um, the guy who used to be my my manager at Heavy Iron, and I was like, hey, well, how's it going? I think we had exchanged a few emails uh, in between, too, and I was like, mm-hmm. I'm back in the U.S. I'm I'm doing this other degree. I'll be able to work here again soon. Um, it was, are you guys hiring? And then and he said, yes, we are, and let me know once you graduate. And the interesting thing, too, is that like when I graduated then, I was able to get so many more interviews than i did the first time like i interviewed with like so many of like my dream studios that i was just like surprised that i was even like getting all those opportunities and it kind of showed that just kind of like being a little bit older and more confident in my abilities and building some of these other skills that i built over the last three years like from communication to networking to like you know just web development like everything like did kind of open some more doors um and then it just happened that you know, heavy iron was the one that I got the actual offer from. So I was like, all right, all right, let's do this <laughs> let's again. Do again. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, I, 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 I say this this way and I hope, you know, if any of my friends at heavy iron listen to this, I hope they don't take it negatively. Like I am so thankful 
for this company because they were the ones that gave me my first opportunity in the industry twice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And and I really appreciate that. But at the end of the day, I always knew that um, I was not going there to be there forever, you know, because I, I had certain dreams in mind that I wanted to go for. And, and Mm. while being there and working games was part of the dream, you know, I wanted more after that too. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So COVID stuff aside, remote working aside, what's it been like to join EA and be part of, you know, the, the work that they're doing there? Cause there's obviously so many games that they're connected to, whether it's through developing or publishing and, uh, getting to work on at least one of those with your with your UI uh, expertise, mm. uh, it, I'm guessing that that's been a, quite a different experience to to working at a smaller studio. It's been very interesting, actually, because you know, Heavy Iron. Yeah, you're right. Like at Heavy Iron, like they've they've gotten to the point now where they're mostly uh, like a work for hire studio, so they get hired by publishers and other developers to help out with stuff you know we i I did a lot of contract work while i was there i worked on a lot of cool projects um but it was usually like we had a relationship with a client uh that we were serving and when i'm working with ea it's like a little bit different because it's almost like um it feels a lot more independent in a way like ea itself is the client right it's not like we're not uh, necessarily responding to an external publisher we are like a first party studio in the ea family so we get to you know we have access to a lot of things and we get to interact with like these other studios and we get to see what's going on across the whole organization and it's just this very um like in in some ways it's similar because i'm still in my studio you know and all the studios are kind of self-contained and have their own administration as you would have as you would expect but then there's kind of this whole other it's like that's just the tip of the iceberg and then there's like this Mm. whole thing under it behind it that's making everything work and that's influencing everything in one way or another so it's just like the i guess the relationship with the stakeholders is just this thing that's very unique about it yeah cool Mm. all right and is there anything about joining that company that's been a surprise to you like anything that's that that's kind of made you realize oh wow like things are different here hmm interesting i would say that like i don't want to get into like too much detail but it's like process in in game development is something that does vary uh from company to company and and that's something that i think i i wouldn't have known uh before like when i mm-hmm. when i worked at heavy iron i kind of assumed that the way we did things was kind of the way everybody did things right and then going to another company, you realize that that's not the case. And maybe there were some things that I thought, you know, um, maybe I, I gotten so used to the way that we did it there that it's weird to see it be done differently uh, in this new studio as far as like how task management goes, or how meetings are organized, or even, you know, the whole social aspect. Like um, as much as I, you know, enjoyed working at Abbey Iron Studios, they were very much a heads down, you know, we're here to, you know, we're, we're getting here and doing work uh, in a lot of ways. And I felt like people were not as necessarily as sociable or as interested in, in uh, having a more like sort of like passionate connection with each other in the, in the workplace. Um, and I say that in the sense of like, you know, that, that old school idea of like, you know, the startup, like the people that are like working together and then they're all going to like happy hour together after and, all of that stuff. Like I didn't really get that at uh heavy iron. And then that's something that I've been getting at 
EA. So I feel like this passion that everybody has mm-hmm. um, to be there and be working together and be working on this game that we're all like very passionate about and excited about. And uh, even it's been weird because of the pandemic, right? So, but in some ways, like even with the pandemic, the fact that these this is kind of coming through. Uh, makes me very excited about the idea of actually working uh, in the studio alongside all these people, which who know God knows when uh, when when that's actually gonna gonna mm. be happening. Yeah, for sure. And obviously, we haven't mentioned what game you're working on because you can't talk about it. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess we can ask what's it like to work. You know, after the journey you've had this years long experience of ups and downs to to be at a, a studio where working on an IP that's probably beloved, that's probably got instant <laughs> interest in it, you know, as soon as it's announced, as soon as it comes out, there'll be people um, tweeting about it and buying it and, you know, merchandising and just being part of a a, a big, um, you know, something something that you can kind of know will, will stand the test of time because it's just such a, a huge studio that's able to, mm-hmm. to work on, on those kinds of uh, experiences. Yeah, it's, it's funny because... I feel like every time I I work in a game, um, every time I've worked in a game in my career, it's been a game that got just like a slightly broader response than the previous one, right? So even if I go all the way back to like, you know, RPG Maker, it would have been like my friends, right? And then mm-hmm. like later in college, it would have been maybe like people in college and like people that were showing the game to. And then at Heavy Iron, like when I, like the first like game that I worked on, Fat City, it was like, some people played it. It was like the first game that I I could like look it up online and see people that reviewed it. And, and then like I worked on other projects at heavy iron. Like one of the projects I worked on was uh, an Amazon game studios game called the grand tour game. I'm actually even wearing the the jacket from it right now. Um, But that was a game that, you know, I don't, I don't think really set the world on fire or anything, but it came out and like thousands of people played it because it was, it was this licensed game based on a TV show. So there were people that watched the TV show and et cetera. Um, and then it just kind of goes from there. And then I just feel like whatever I'm working on now, because it's, uh, it's at EA, like that, that is probably going to be the biggest response that I've seen so far. And I think that would be scary for a lot of people, but it's not at all for me. I just find it exciting. Like it makes me more excited about what I'm doing, um, that Mm -hmm. more people are going to get to see it and potentially be critical about it. It makes me like really care. Uh, Not like I wouldn't otherwise, but it's just kind of, I almost, I'm somebody that works well under pressure. Um, Mm -hmm. So the best way for me to actually get stuff done is to like give myself that pressure. Sometimes I like feeling that. And I also really like, by the way, um, reading reactions uh, of people to things that I've worked on. So when the Grand Tour game came out, I remember that I watched like every Twitch stream that I saw of like somebody. I was like, no, like no joke. I was like, I had it open. I had Twitch open all day, all at work, like kind of, you know, on the on the on the background with people streaming that game, the people that were streaming it. I read every single YouTube comment and every single YouTube video that I found because I was just so interested in that. I was like, I want to see what people think. Is anybody talking about the UI, by the way? Because like, that's what I did. <laughs> but I was, I, I just wanted to see what people were saying. And it, I, I, some people, I, I think it's different when, you know, like you're putting yourself out there and you're seeing criticism over your own person. But this was more like it was my work, right? So I, I, I take my work personally, but I can also separate it. So if anybody had a 
uh, criticism of it, I could I could read it and be like, oh yeah, he's right, you know, and, and like and like kind of think about it, or oh no, he's wrong, <laughs> or she's yeah. wrong, you know, like or no, this this actually doesn't make sense. They don't understand the context of why we made that decision. Or, you know, I thought, yeah, that's a good point. You know, like, I wish they, I wish, you know, my, my boss would have known that or something, or would have thought that way too, or maybe I should have thought of that. So I actually take a lot of um, pleasure almost in actually going through that stuff and internalizing it and figuring out like, well, we could have done better or different mm-hmm. or sometimes it's not me, but it's like the team. Right. So I, I enjoy that. That's great. Yeah. I think that's a good way to, to get better is to listen to as much feedback as possible for sure. Yeah, definitely. So what would you say has been the hardest part of your journey? Because it's been quite different too. I imagine most people who've gotten into the games industry, like you've had, you know, moving from one country to another multiple times and that first kind of hint of, of failure that you had to overcome too, right? Yeah, exactly. So that time frame is like, it was really hard. Um, and I feel like a lot of people go through that in this industry or trying to break into this industry, no matter what role they're going for. I, I see people I know going through it sometimes and, Mm. um, and it's always difficult and I always try to help. Um, I'm actually very passionate about trying to help students, uh, right out of college or as they're about to graduate college, I've gone to like career fairs before. Um, I do like, I get involved in my school, like trying to be in sessions where I'm trying to like, give them advice about like ways to approach interviews or, and in fact, like even like talking on this podcast right now, like if anybody listening to this is interested in breaking into the games industry in any way, and you want to message me on, you know, Twitter or on LinkedIn or anything like that, I always try to respond. I've actually had like people that, you know, that have done that before in different ways, like at GDC, for instance, or things like that, students that I, that I tried to help, the best way I can like sometimes there's only so much I can do but I can tell I've I've interviewed people before by the way um plenty of times I can tell you what a programmer interview is roughly what that is roughly like and Mm. that's the kind of practical advice that I wish more people would have given me uh in the past because I feel like people give a lot of the same advice always like you know believe in yourself work on stuff whatever right and and it's, it's it's not bad advice but Sometimes you need that practical thing, like no, like for real, it's like what should I study? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. which uh, which whiteboard problems are more likely to uh, to show up on my on my interviews and things like that? So, I tend to like to give that kind of advice. Did I just go on a tangent? What was the question again? <laughs> um, well, the question was about the hardest part of getting here. But I think yeah. that you you know by being a listener of the show, you know that the next question was going to be about advice. So maybe subconsciously you've you've answered two questions at once. I don't know. Yeah. Well, maybe. Yeah. I I, I know you're. Uh, I I know the question you always ask at the end. Um, yeah. I don't know if I have a good response for that though. But I'll I'll think. Oh, of we'll one. get to that. We'll get to it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, that that time frame was hard for me because I had to deal with this idea that that I that I had failed and and that maybe it wasn't for me and that I was just going to do something else instead. And being at a job that I that I didn't like as much, um, you know, with with all with all its problems, like being alone in L.A. and not getting paid a lot, et cetera. I loved my initial like getting laid off at the end. I loved my initial uh, opportunity at having iron like going to work every day to hang out with like a bunch of people I like and make a, like make this game together. I was like, this is awesome. Um, so then, then going back to what felt like more like a day to day 
you know, nine to five job that I wasn't that passionate about and look at like my possibilities and feel like I was at a dead end because at the time I didn't really want to go back to school again and getting a getting a work visa otherwise is like almost impossible like it's different when you're already working at a company and then they'll like they like you and they'll sponsor your work visa when you're a nobody with like almost no experience in a different country like good luck with that like it's happened i'm not saying it's impossible i think i just realized that's probably too negative for people that are maybe in the same situation like the weight that's how i thought what i thought at the time in hindsight what I could have done was like try to build and build and build all the skills that I would have needed to be the best I could be for a job. Right. And then maybe I, I could have done it that way. Um, hmm. But, you know, going back to school after a certain amount of years was a possibility that became viable. So um, I just kind of and the interesting thing, too, is that like when I went back to school day one, I was like, this is it. I'm going to make this work like. I'm going to put my all into this. I'm going to get as many skills out of this as I can. I'm going to go to every event. I'm going to network with every <laughs> single person I, I can, right? Um, and I had so many opportunities, man. Like, I had so many more opportunities open up. And then and then the one, but then they all, like, kind of fell apart last minute. And then the one that worked out was, like, heavy iron. And I was like, great. All right. Now I'm going to make this work. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. All right, Dan, last question. You know, You know it's coming. Yeah, I know. <laughs> if you could do anything and you wouldn't fail, what would you be doing? Um, so here's the interesting thing. I, I think that's such an interesting question, by the way. Has anybody ever asked you, like, how did you come up with this? Or like, because I don't think I've ever heard this anywhere else. <laughs> I think someone, yeah, like a pastor asked me at like a, a young adults camp that mm-hmm. I was on, like went around the room and just asked everyone the same question. And it was a cool, I thought it was a cool exercise that kind of reveals a lot about someone. It is, it is. The interesting thing is that in some ways I feel like I'm already doing it. And in some ways I, I also don't feel like the fear of failing was ever that much of a an impediment for me necessarily. It's more mm. about, so to, to me a lot of times my impediment is more about do I have the time to do this or, you know, is this going to be worth it? Right. Like, is this going to be worth the time to put in? Um, like, is this, am I actually going to get something out of this at the end? So if I look at it from that perspective, I feel like, and this will, this will cycle back to the beginning. I feel like maybe I would want to be a writer. Um, and that's why that's, it's one of those things that is in my bucket list where it's like, I do want to go back and finish that book. <laughs> and uh, I do want to put more time into that. And and I, I definitely want to, that's definitely something that I want to pursue further. Um, and sometimes I feel like I just don't have the the time yet. But yeah, I am, I do really like it. I mean, I didn't even get into it, but while I was in Brazil, one of the things that I did is I created this website for uh, for fiction writers in Brazil. And it's like, I run it to this day. It's like this weird, like little hobby project of mine. That sounds good. I mean, it's the good thing about writing is, you know, because you're not doing it for a a job, it's probably something you could come home from work and do and not feel like it's work necessarily. It's kind of like a fun hobby or Mm -hmm. using different parts of your brain. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for joining me, Dan. It's, it's been really interesting. I, I love your story. Um, it's it's one like I haven't really heard on this podcast before. So mm-hmm. thanks for Thank reaching you. out to me and for listening to the podcast and sharing your experience. Thank you so much for, for having me. Thank you for listening and a big thanks to Audio Technica and Manscaped. If you want to catch more from Dan, you can get him on Twitter at TheDanLima and you can check out his own podcast, Ready, Press, Play. To get behind this show, of course, you can leave your five-star ratings and reviews in your podcast service of choice. You can get behind everything that I'm part of with 8-Bit as well as the rest of the great content kids within the 8-Bit Collective over at patreon.com slash weare8bit. That's A-T-E-B-I-T few dollars a month goes a long way to keeping the emotional lights on but for now you can catch me on socials at Jono himself and until next episode keep putting in work